a financial plan requires planning. It's savings, RRSPs, investments, and planning for the unexpected. TD Term Life Insurance can help protect your family's financial future if you were to unexpectedly pass away. You can apply for TD Term Life Insurance online or over the phone by speaking to a licensed advisor. If you're under the age of 55, you could be approved for up to $500,000 of coverage without a medical exam. Conditions apply. TD Term Life Insurance is underwritten by TD Life Insurance Company. Visit tdinsurance.com slash termlife to learn more. While the new year has brought some hope in the COVID-19 fight with a ramping up of vaccine campaigns, 2021 is also presenting a new set of challenges in the pandemic. Variant strains that can be passed more easily from person to person are cropping up, and there are supply issues when it comes to the vaccines. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey joins me to talk about the concerns around the new virus strains, whether Quebec's new curfew could help slow down infections, and the challenges Canada is facing with its vaccine rollout. Don't forget you can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. Sharon, I I think many people had hoped the new year would bring a new sense of hope when it came to coronavirus, but 2021 is at least, for starters, more of the same, and in some cases, worse. Cases are still high in our largest provinces. The vaccine rollout isn't going as smoothly as people had hoped. And now we have a mutated strain of COVID-19 that seems to spread even more quickly. Where did the new strain originate and why is it a concern? Well, the mutated strain that's causing the most concern right now is what's known as the UK strain. Its technical name is B117. And it was first detected after a big spike in cases in England in early December, though, you know, it's possible it could have been already circulating somewhere else, you know, somewhere that they don't have really strong surveillance, strong genomic surveillance, which looks at samples from positive patients to see how the virus is changing. It's not at all surprising that we have mutant strains, not just the UK one, but there's one from South Africa another one from Brazil. You know, we've seen other variants as well. Viruses like the coronavirus mutate all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't reproduce faithfully, right? They change over time. I guess what's important, though, is does the mutation or mutations change the way the virus behaves? You know, does it make it more contagious or more transmissible? Does it make it more lethal? And the UK variant has an unusually high number of mutations, like there's 17 key ones on the spike protein that makes it easier for the virus to latch onto and invade our cells. And that makes it more transmissible and, you know, roughly 50 to 60 percent more transmissible, according to the available data so far, than the dominant circulating strain. So with that kind of increase in transmissibility, does that mean we'll see more hospitalizations or deaths or is that data still unknown? Well, so far, no, there's no sign that it's increasing the rates of hospitalizations or deaths. But, you know, there is some data that suggests people have higher viral loads when they get infected with this mutated strain, which, you know, might explain why it seems to spread faster and easier than the current dominant strains. The data is still not all in, but so far it doesn't seem to be more dangerous, just more transmissible, which in fact in itself is not a good thing because it just means that there are going to be more people getting infected. And the more people who get infected, the more people will get sick and ultimately the more people will die. 
The Canadian government had tried to enact travel bans to stop further spread of the variant in Canada, but now that we have cases here, is it conceivable that the strain will get a foothold in the country? Well, you know, absolutely. As of yesterday, there were 14 confirmed cases of this variant in Canada. You know, we've had cases in BC, in Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, you know, and it's likely, highly likely we have more because we're only sampling, we're only doing those genomic analyses on like 5% of positive samples. Now, that's much higher than the U.S., which last time I heard was sequencing fewer than 1% of their samples. But there's no question it's here. And the question is, how rapidly is it spreading? In the UK, it took just three months for this variant to overtake the dominant strain. And several people I've spoken with say, you know, it's highly likely it's going to displace the strains circulating here because those strains are less efficient at transmitting. It's just how viral ecology and viral evolution works. We have this network called the Canadian COVID Genomics Network, and it's this network of laboratories that are doing the genetic sequencing of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID. And they're increasing testing in sort of hot spots, you know, areas where they're seeing dramatic uh, increases in cases. They're also looking at international travelers. They're trying to find a way to flag samples that might be suspicious, that might be at higher risk for having the UK variant. So that if it starts to spread, if it starts to accelerate, that we might be on top of it faster. And that might mean, though, more public health measures will be needed to slow it down, you know, to buy time until we can ramp up vaccinations. The UK has actually extended strict lockdown measures to help beat back a spike in cases linked to this variant. And in Canada, cases have generally been on the rise since the fall, and that's forced provincial governments to enact tougher measures on businesses and gatherings. And in the case of Quebec and possibly even Ontario, I guess we'll see what they do, a curfew. Now, is there evidence something like a curfew will work or is it seen more as a punitive measure, especially in the wake of news that numerous public officials in the country traveled to other sunny locales over the holidays? There is evidence curfews can work. Curfews are really extreme measures, right? They're, they're normally reserved for martial law situations. But there was a paper in the journal Nature recently that looked at dozens of possible restrictions and interventions, you know, banning small and mass gatherings, closing schools, border restrictions, national lockdowns. And they found that curfews were among the most effective at slowing spread. But nothing is straightforward with COVID, right? It's hard to tease out from a lot of the studies, what is the most effective intervention because none of the measures are ever done in isolation, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to do controlled experiments. You know, let's look at one city or region that did a curfew only and compare it to another city that didn't. David Naylor, who's helping lead Canada's COVID immunity task force over the weekend, he tweeted that, you know, you, you don't know how to separate curfews from other factors, like banning large or small gatherings. He said it's like doing the therapeutic chemistry of chicken soup. But he and others think curfews are more nuisance than benefit. And although Quebec Premier Francois Legault, in announcing the curfew, said that the goal here isn't to make people's lives more miserable, this curfew in Quebec, people can't leave their homes between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. except for exceptional circumstances like going to and from late shifts. But it is absolutely going to make life more miserable for some people, especially working parents who now have less time to rush around to get their errands done. Mm -hmm. It's likely going to increase stress. 
likely going to increase depression and anxiety and more worrisome, probably instances of domestic violence. Narita wrote to me on the weekend to say, you know, Quebec may get away with doing this, but it's likely a curfew wouldn't fly in the West, for example. And it's going to be really interesting to see whether Legault's extreme measure really moves the needle in a meaningful way. Now, looking at vaccines, is there any evidence that the vaccines that are currently being deployed in Canada and other countries are less effective when it comes to the UK variant, or is that still unknown? Well, Pfizer reported last week, I think on Friday, that its vaccine appears effective against the UK variant, which is, you know, good news. It it appears to neutralize a key mutation of the variant, not just the UK variant, but also the South African one, which, like the UK variant, has an unusually high number of mutations, and like the UK strain, is thought to be much more transmissible. The Pfizer did their study on blood taken from people who received the vaccine, so. The Pfizer vaccine, yes, is expected to induce immunity against these variants. And remember, the Pfizer vaccine is one of two approved vaccines so far in Canada. The other is Moderna's. But we have to be careful because the Pfizer findings are limited. They didn't look at the full set of mutations found on either of the new variants, just a key mutation. Mm -hmm. And with Canada's vaccine program, we saw it roll out slowly over the holidays. And I know some provincial governments have been criticized for the pace at which they were rolling out the vaccinations, but they've started to pick up speed once the calendar turned over. And so much so we're getting to the point where provinces say that they're running out of supplies. Are they facing a shortage and what's causing that? Canada definitely had a slow start. You know, we're behind countries like Israel and the UK. We've secured the highest number of doses per capita than any country. Federal officials keep telling us that. We, you know, we had these pre-approval contracts to get more than 200 million vaccines for 38 million people because those contracts were premised on the thinking that not all of the vaccines under development would pan out. But so far, we've vaccinated less than the last Bloomberg tracker story with 0.7% of the population. Doug Ford, Ontario's premier, has said Ontario will run out of doses this week if more doesn't arrive soon. The federal government says it's talking to vaccine suppliers, trying to ramp up deliveries. Last week, Major General Danny Fortin, he heads up the federal vaccine effort. He said, you know, we'll have 6 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines delivered by end of March, which would be enough to vaccinate about 8% of Canada's population. But, you know, there is a lot of criticism that we should have secured more doses and secured them more quickly. If we don't get new stocks of the vaccine and people can't get their second shots in a timely matter, what does that mean in terms of protection from the virus? That's a concern for sure. Many provinces have stopped holding back the second doses. So both Pfizer and Moderna are two-dose vaccines, right? You give one shot and then wait 21 or 28 days to give the second shot. But rather than hold back that second dose with each delivery or shipment, they're giving more people the first dose. You know, they're using it all, hoping that the supply chain will produce the second dose in time. You know, the thinking is we have that second dose sitting around in freezers when we have case numbers rising so rapidly. Let's get it into people's arms, right? It's better to have more people get some protection than none at all. And Uh, Last week, the World Health Organization, their uh, vaccine advisory committee said, okay, in exceptional circumstances, meaning 
severe shortages, yes, it's okay to space out the interval between shots to 42 days, so an extra three weeks or so. The problem with that is that the safety and efficacy of these vaccines were based on a particular schedule and a particular dose. And the vast majority of volunteers in those trials got that second dose within the window that was set out in the study design. So the shots were proven to be 90 to 95% effective, but it's that second shot that really provides this really dramatic boost to the immune system. It's where you really see evidence of T-cell immunity, which gives you really longer lasting immunity. So it's not clear how long that first dose would be effective you know, and by sending the message, okay, it's safe to wait longer between doses, people may either not bother to show up for their second dose or, you know, they might walk out of the vaccine clinic thinking, you know, I'm entirely immune now and they stop masking or distancing. So it's a trade-off. Is it better to have two people partially protected or one person fully protected? And, and you know, what if something happens and you don't get that second dose in time? Do, you know, do we then have to revaccinate everyone all over again? I understand that some countries are even having the doses that people are getting so they can give more people the vaccine in their first dose or so they the supplies last longer. Could Canada look at doing the same or does it present the same concern with a delay between the first and the second shot? We do know that Canada's National Advisory Committee is exploring whether it's safe to stretch out the time between the doses in a pinch. They've also already said, you know, it's okay to mix doses if you're in a pinch. You know, if someone gets their first vaccine and it's a Pfizer shot, if officials are hard-pressed and they run out of Pfizer, it'll be okay to give the Moderna vaccine for the second shot because they're both messenger RNA vaccines. They're both based on the same technology. So the thinking is they're similar enough that you can actually mix them or swap them. But it's not clear whether they're looking at having doses, which is something officials in the U.S. at the U.S. National Institutes of Health and also Moderna scientists, they're exploring as well. But again, it's sort of that same concern, right? It's that it goes away from the science because neither the Pfizer nor Moderna studies used half doses given twice or even a single dose. And the concern is that giving people less vaccine would make more people sick. So instead of talking about how do we stretch out doses, how do we eke out supplies, we should be really focusing instead on ramping up vaccine production. You know, that's Mm -hmm. what Dr. Paul Offit told me. He's a vaccine expert who co-developed a rotavirus vaccine, and he's a member of the FDA advisory committee that's evaluating and looking at which vaccine should be approved. He said, it's astonishing that within one year of identifying and sequencing the virus that causes COVID-19, that we even have vaccines that are so effective, you know, up to 95% effective against COVID. So the job is mass produce them, figure out a way to distribute them and get them into people's arms fast. That should be the discussion. Mm -hmm. Some countries will have vaccinated their populations ahead of Canada. When could we realistically expect the bulk of Canadians or the amount that we'd need for herd immunity to get vaccinated by fall, by the end of the year into 2022? What's the timeline that we're looking at right now? We've heard from the federal government that by September, every Canadian who wants a vaccine will get one. Dominic LeBlanc, the federal intergovernmental affairs minister, said over the weekend that he's confident that over the coming weeks we're really going to see a considerable scale-up across Canada. He's hoping Pfizer and Moderna will deliver doses sooner than expected, which was the case in December. The shots came 
a little earlier than the provinces were told to expect them. And so LeBlanc has said he's hopeful we'll see more doses that were scheduled for March to start arriving in February and shots that were scheduled to come in February arriving this month. Again, you know, the UK has plans to vaccinate tens of millions of people by in the spring. Right now, we're only doing residents and staff of long-term care. You know, we're doing frontline health workers, Mm -hmm. adults and First Nations, Métis and Inuit populations, you know, really key populations. It's going to be some time before you and I and other people who aren't part of these high-risk populations will get a chance to get vaccinated. Well, I guess we'll see how things go over the coming months. Uh, Sharon, thanks for your time. My pleasure, Dave. 10.3 is a production of Post Media, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sharon Kirkey. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.